Come on with it. Hey, y'all, Chigger Ticky, and welcome to the podcast. This week, let's take a look for a moment at a Bible story that would be rated R by the Motion Picture Association of America. It comes from the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. Main character is King David who, you may recall, sprang from obscurity to fame when, as a boy, he used a little slingshot to kill the giant Goliath. Now he is king over the twelve tribes of Israel, a powerful position. And God has blessed David with intelligence, charisma, good looks, and an enormous libido. David can have his pick of women. Already he has many concubines and wives, but he's like a kid in a candy store. But I want more. One day he's sunning himself on the roof of the palace when he looks down over the neighborhood and sees a naked woman taking a bath. She is aptly named Bathsheba. She is the wife of Uriah, one of David's soldiers away fighting a war. Bathsheba is possibly the most beautiful woman David has ever seen. So he says to one of his servants, Go get her. Tell her the king would like to have a cocktail with her. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Well, she comes over, sleeps with David, and, whoa, whoa, gets pregnant. But David's crafty. This ain't his first rodeo. So he orders Uriah back from battle, greets him, and says, why don't you go and have a nice, intimate evening with your beautiful wife? But Uriah is a good, loyal subject of the king, and he says to David, Thank you, sir, but I am in your service and shall not partake of the pleasures of the flesh until the enemy is vanquished. I'll just stay in the local barracks with the other soldiers. Now David's got to think fast. And here's what he comes up with. He orders Uriah back to the front lines, but he also sends a message to the general commanding the troops that Uriah's soldiers should fall back from him in the heat of the battle so that he'll be killed. And that's exactly what happens. Quickly overcoming his guilt, David takes Bathsheba as his newest wife and looks forward to the birth of their new child. But then... His party-pooping personal prophet, Nathan, shows up. In the Bible, prophets are sort of like God's hotline telephone into the world. If God wants to say some, something to somebody or some group of people, he picks up the hotline and his words come out of the prophet's mouth. Nathan, David's prophet, says to David, Your Royal Highness, let me tell you something that just happened. A rich man took a poor man's only sheep, which the poor man loved very much. And the rich man, even though he had many flocks of sheep, slaughtered the poor man's sheep for a feast. Your Highness, what should be done to this rich man? Incensed by the injustice of it all, David says, Why, this rich man must die. Come on, Nathan, let's go kick his ass. Not so fast, says the prophet to David. Then he looks into the eyes of the king and says, You are that man. This pushes David far enough outside of himself that he can turn around and look back at himself, and he sees the truth in Nathan's words. He is that man. He is the rich man with all he needs 
taking advantage of one who has so little. Things don't turn out well. David and Bathsheba's child will die, sending David into a deep depression. Twenty years ago, I was in Santa Fe, New Mexico, training to be a missionary, along with about 40 other newly recruited trainees. We were sent to this location because it was in the famous Four Corners part of the United States, where several proud American Indian nations live on sacred land and maintain their indigenous cultures. We were all Caucasian American missionaries, so were our trainers, who presented themselves to us as experienced and learned ones. In fact, they were rather patronizing of us newbies. Their attitude was, Bless your little hearts. You are culturally insensitive now, but when you leave here in two weeks, we will have taught you the ins and outs of multiculturalism, and you will be sensitive and ready to go into God's great multicultural world, thanks to us. Frankly, my trainers rubbed me the wrong way. Shortly, they had divided us into four groups of about ten, and they designated each group with the name of one of the great Indian nations of the Four Corners. One group was the Navajo, another was the Hopi, another the Zuni, and the other the Ute. Early in the training, we were addressed by a guest speaker, a Native American woman, a teacher from a nearby college. As one of our trainers introduced her, he told her that we trainees had been divided into groups and named for the four great nations. At that, her face, the, the speaker's face, suddenly turned dark and stormy. When she got to the podium, she turned to the trainers and asked sarcastically, Have I been invited to a little white boy's kindergarten party? Are we going to put on headbands and feathers and dance around a cardboard fire? Are we going to wave tomahawks and have a powwow? She rolled her eyes, shook her head, and muttered, I am so tempted to leave this place right now. Then she looked at the leadership team and said, Our tribal names are sacred. They are not playthings. They are not meant to be your name tags. I want to walk out of here right now, but for the sake of these people, she gestured to us trainees, I will stay and talk. In the place of Nathan, this time God had sent a Native American female prophet, and she stood before people who were eager to judge others and said, Not so fast. You are that man. Well, I went on to Africa and wound up spending two years in the Democratic Republic of Congo helping Congolese laypeople and pastors fund and organize an HIV-AIDS education ministry. In 2004, on my very last night in Congo, I was seated in an open-air restaurant with a friend who was a Congolese minister. We hadn't worked together much, but a mutual interest in history and world affairs had forged a friendship between us. On this night, we were discussing what had happened in the neighboring nation of Rwanda only a decade earlier. 
As you may know, Rwanda is home to two indigenous peoples or tribes, the Hutu and the Tutsi. In April 1994, the Hutu people began to indiscriminately massacre the Tutsi people, a genocide in which as many as 800,000 people were slaughtered. On this evening, I was showing off my knowledge of African history by recalling the roots of the Rwandan massacre. I mentioned how they could be traced back to when the Europeans had come to colonize the land. The story goes that when the white colonizers showed up, they began to prefer the Tutsi people to the Hutu, perhaps because the Tutsi physical features were more similar to those of Europeans. Thus, the Tutsis were given the preferred jobs. They were given better educations. It wasn't unusual for some of their children to be sent to Europe for university educations, and so they would become politically and economically advantaged over the Hutus. Understandably, then, when Rwanda gained independence, the neglected Hutu people had grown angrily resentful. I think the technical term is they were royally pissed off at the Tutsis. And the whole thing led into a feud that made the Hatfields and the McCoys look like a tea party. So that night in the Congolese restaurant, as I kind of went over all that, I asked my friend, what do you think made the Europeans so culturally insensitive? Oddly, he didn't respond to my question. In fact, he suddenly wouldn't make eye contact with me. Is something wrong? I asked. He didn't answer. He just shook his head and looked down. I pleaded with him. Something's wrong. Please tell me. Finally, he looked at me, his eyes very sad, and he said, You have done exactly what those Europeans did. What? I gasped. I was incredulous. What, what do you mean? He sighed and asked me, Do you know there are two tribes of people here in this part of the Congo? Wait, I protested. I was told that everyone was of the Baluba tribe. He said, That's true. But then there are what you might call sub-tribes. Think of the Muslims. While they're all Muslims, there are Sunni, and then there are Shia. In a sense, it's this way with our people, the Baluba. There are two different groups. And since you arrived, you have put all of the American church's resources and energy, not with my people, but with the others. You've given them the opportunities, the trips, the salaries, and you've excluded my people. He began listing the names of those who had been recruited into the leadership of the HIV-AIDS ministry. And they were all of one group, not his group, and none were from his group. I didn't know. I didn't know, I gasped. I was almost in a panic. I had no idea. I was utterly deflated. In fact, I could feel tears in my eyes. Here I was, about to leave this land, and these people whom I had grown to love 
with the new knowledge that in ignorance I had excluded one people and preferred another. My friend saw my eyes welling, and his expression turned very sympathetic. He said, hey, 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 this didn't start with you. Ever since the first missionaries arrived, it's been this way. A lot like Rwanda. Why didn't you say something, I asked. Why didn't you tell me? He explained that even though his people continually got the shaft, every time they had protested, it turned into such a row between the tribes that the American church would threaten to withdraw its support if the Congolese didn't work it out among themselves. He said, and my people can't afford to lose the clinics, the doctors, the, the services that your church provides. We don't bother you guys with it. In so many words, he was saying, it is what it is. Then he looked at me very apologetically, as if he had done something wrong, and said, I should have never said anything to you about this. But it was the truth, and it needed to be said. I had been in Congo for two years, all that time regarding myself as a man of great cultural awareness. Oh, and I was quick to judge those who had gone before me as being ignorant and insensitive. And now, in an open-air restaurant, I was face-to-face -face with a Congolese prophet who was telling me, you are that man. You know, in the late 1880s, the French built the Eiffel Tower in Paris. And for the next 30 or 40 years, the tower was generally regarded as an awkward monstrosity, a, a hideous wrought iron blight on an otherwise beautiful and lovely city. The people of Paris began to say that the best place from which to view the city was on the observation deck of the Eiffel Tower because it was the only place in the city from which you didn't have to look at the Eiffel Tower. I guess there's a sense in which each of us is like our own Eiffel Tower. We look out from the observation deck of our minds and we don't have to see ourselves. So it's rather easy to judge others and regard ourselves as superior to them. But as we gaze out from our towers, perhaps if we look closely enough, we'll see a prophet out there holding up a huge mirror and we'll be left saying, hey, wait a minute, turns out that was me. I was judging and cracking on all this time. Whoa, whoa. Thank God there's grace. And thank you for joining me for this episode of Chigger Tiki Podcast. If you like the podcast, please feel free to leave a review, share it with your friends. Most of all, I'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me at chiggertiki at gmail.com. Visit the chiggertiki.com website. I want you all to be kind to one another, be excellent to one another, and I want you all also to remember to stay hydrated. Stay hydrated. It's hot out there. Check you next time. Come on with it.